Blog Talk Radio. Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand, and yes, 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 we are live today. And I know we're about 15 minutes late, but you know what? It's better than to be not here at all. So, and heaven knows with, with technology, you never know whether you're going to really be there. It could be Memorex. So, you know what? We're happy to be live. So, we're actually having a good episode today, or at least I hope so. I know these guys, so I think that you guys are going to be pleasantly surprised at how much mayhem they can get into. I've known Michael D'Ambrosio since 2004, believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs) One of my original authors who I haven't had around that long, and we are just so happy to have him in Arizona right now. I haven't seen him in a couple of years in person, so we're happy to have him on the show and... We also have Don, who really should be on this side of the mic, so that way, and he's going to be over here. And I'll probably be giving the uh, mic to them eventually when I actually want to give it to them. So there. Uh, We're going to be talking about space. We're going to be talking about conventions. We're going to be talking about Leprechaun. We're going to be talking about fandom. Oh, my goodness. What else can we get into? We can get into pop culture because, you know, what? that just encompasses everything. But uh, we talked about last night. Hey, we went to Batman. Were you there? If you weren't there, how come? You need to be there. It was really cool last night. We had a we had a full room of just you know lots of people who loved Batman, and we saw the original one with Michael Keaton, and you know we were talking about that. <laughs> as soon as we get somebody over here. I'm going to start, hey, Don, we're just going to start, and I'll talk to Mike for a little bit while you're getting your, getting your stuff together. And, you know, that's what it takes around here. It's just kind of like, you know what, let's just move and shake it with it. And, you know, as you guys know, this is live, so you can call in. You know, I don't have to have Mike to myself, and I don't have Don to myself, but I can get him anytime. So, <laughs> so he's 714-242-5145. Mike. Hello. You went, to, you went to the movie yesterday. Yeah, it was good seeing the old Batman, Michael Keaton. We were talking a little bit about that. The fact that now uh, we like the original because of the real good story arc between the Joker and Batman, and how that was all came to be. Yeah, the character arc is a very important part of any story, and it was really cool to see batman becoming who he was because of the joker before the joker became who he was because of batman yeah so it's yeah. kind of a, it's a really it's interesting a yeah and really um that's really kind of the whole point of that particular comic book yeah the fun yeah. part was too was after they became who they were you still got a chance to see them evolve further into their their abyss of darkness yeah they both had the darkness and and again 
uh, caused the darkness in each other. So that was that was an interesting uh, way. And I think that honestly, still above everything else, I still happen to like how Michael, what Michael Keaton brought to it. He did. He, he brought the humanness to it. I think better than than any of the other actors I've seen that have played the role. Yeah, you can see the hurting. You can see where he wants to open up. He wants to have the romance. He wants to be a normal person. But there's always like a like a deep deep scar. You know what happened to his parents. You know getting the revenge and you know going after. You know well, before he knew the Joker was the Joker. It was Jack Napier. So uh, it's Jack, Jack, you know, Jack Nicholson playing you know the Joker and Jack is just it's so perfect. Yeah, Jack Nicholson is one of those elite actors that can take any role and make it spectacular. If it's already spectacular, he'll take it to another level. Uh, there's not that many like him. I mean, Sean Connery's another actor like that. There's certain ones that they they live that role. And seeing the way Jack Nicholson was, you know, you know, he he got nuttier as the role went on. And that was <laughs> another part of it. Seeing as as the arc developed, you know, he grew more nuttier as as the movie progressed. Yeah, and that, that is true. We, we we knew he was a latch from the beginning, but you know he really became uh, worse when he went over the edge. You know, and uh, I just think that the, the two of them together were, uh, you know, just they played off each other so well. Yeah, and the way the way their relationship was, this, this was going to go on until somebody died, and it's, the the longer it went on, the more anxious they were to see it end. Somebody was going to die. And we did see that when the with the Joker and Batman uh, with Keith Ledger uh, version, but the thing is that we didn't see the uh, the arc of of how they made each other. And I think that's what really made this particular story again uh, one of the best Batmans. Yeah, with Heath Ledger, he played a great role, you know, for the dark side. But it's like he was already there. Yeah, you know, we got a chance to see Batman. See how he got that dark. Yeah, and it just, it never showed a humanist to him, it never showed, it was always just that one dark uh, progression in life, and I mean, he played it great, you know, that's not a knock against him, but it's just, you didn't see as much of an arc as you did with the the 1989 version, the Tim Burton version. I agree, I agree, and then, and you know, something be about dark, but not too dark, Um, I think that, you know, they might got a little darker, and as the other uh, episodes or other movies progressed. Yeah, I think, too, with like Jack Nicholson, the way he played the role, it was almost, he was so unpredictable because sometimes you couldn't tell if he was just a nice guy being on a bad day or if he really was a psycho, like the Heath Ledger role. So it was, it was kind of interesting you know, watching as it went along. And, you know, sometimes he just had that sick sense of humor, like when he shot his sidekick, Bob, you know, just, just the way, you know, things developed. It showed, like how un- unstable he was. And we saw Jack Palance for, you know, which we rarely ever see, and, and of course we will never see again. So uh, he was a great role in that. Yeah, Jack Palance, he's another one of the great ones. Uh, he's been around for years. Uh, you know, I've seen him play some really uncharacteristic roles. One one uh, one of the Dracula movies, he played Dracula. Uh, so, I mean, he's he's been in quite a few, a lot of Westerns. Yeah. Um, but he's one of the great ones that, you know, now that he's gone, we don't hear a lot about. That's true. That's true. And it's funny, I just realized, yeah, Jack and Jack playing Jack. Yeah. <laughs> Jack Nicholson playing Jack Napier. <laughs> so this, this thing, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But the question is, who is crazier, Jack Napier or Jack Nicholson? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've seen we've seen Jack Nicholson play some really crazy roles. We've seen him play, uh, play some crazy roles in real life, too. <laughs> yeah. uh, he's, he's a wild child. Yeah, he's, he's an interesting guy. 
Now, again, he's bringing some of his own personality to it, I think. So, and, and you know, we know some of the big stars that done that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's that's something you look for. Like, I guess with some of the actors, they're able to actually live the role as if it's their own life. Uh, with with Jack Nicholson, I mean, we've seen him in The Shining. What he could bring to that. I mean, he seems to know how to. Like we've seen him play some of the roles where he was so like mild mannered, gentlemanly, and then we've seen him go the whole other end of the spectrum. Yeah, and uh, we were talking about Wolf. Yeah, Wolf was another interesting <laughs> one, and he seems to thrive on that that, that corny sense of humor. You know, like the the bathroom scene where he's marking his territory. You know, uh, and to me that's Jack Nicholson. That's him at his best. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the way, I could see him being that way in real life. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of funny. Here he's that is probably how he is in real life. You know, so that's an interesting role. Uh, what do you think about the the, the camaraderie that we think we, that you feel in a room full, uh, a theater full of people like minded, who love the same movie? I was impressed because everybody was into it before the movie even started, uh, during the presentations. I mean, you could just see everybody was into it. Yeah. You know, and for a movie that, like, it's not like it was one of the the new hot movies, like a new yeah. Spider-Man or what. This was a 1989 version of Batman. It was a cult classic. And just to, all the people that were there, everybody was excited. After the movie, everybody was excited. I mean, it was it just, you know, you could feel it in the air that it was electrified. The was full. And that was really impressed with that. And it seems like um, that whole program is a good program, running the cult classics like that. Uh, a lot of the people are, are definitely repeat uh, you know, attenders. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, a lot of them, a lot of the comments we heard in the line were, you know, what they saw last week, what they saw the week before. I mean, everybody's excited. Mm-hmm. And it's, that says a lot for the, for the Pollock Theater, for the job they did with this. Well, you know, Victor does an awesome job of this. And, of course, it's taken a couple of years to do this and get up to this level. And so, you know, now he's there is, is, is a good level to be. Um, he's able to, you know, uh, promote really well. And he, as he puts it, he says, yeah, constantly be out there promoting. Yeah, and it's nice. Um, you know, the people behind it, the sponsors for this, uh, Leprechaun did a great job, a great presence there. Uh, you know, we say so ourselves, thank you. The cult classics group that was there. But, I mean, they had everybody pumped up, going around, you know, talking to people in the line before. Uh, like I said, every, everything about it was just a lot of fun. You know, this is something I haven't seen in a long time. So, uh, for me, it was, it was enjoyable. Yeah, I understand that Mike, Michael actually lives in Philadelphia. So, he doesn't get down here very, very often. And so, he's never actually been able to be this kind of, uh, you know, what, what we've got going on down here. So, it's any different for him. And so, we're, we're really happy that he was a part of that and, uh, that I could get him in, and we we had a you know great night last night. By the way, uh, and for those of you who went to the free comic book day yesterday, boy, that was crazy. That was crazy. And of course, uh, we would like to thank uh, the Gotham Comics for uh, Gotham City Comics to be able to give us uh, all those free uh, comic books. I mean, we had you know good 350 comic books that we gave out last night. So, you know, it's, it's, it's about all the little details, you know, the things that we get from other... Com- oh, yeah. You're for who? Oh, oh yeah. We have to thank... Um, <laughs> that was reminding us that uh, we need to thank Samurai Comics for hosting us yesterday uh, for Free Comic Book Day, as well as Pop Culture Paradise. Hey, Marco. And also for getting these... The uh, charity sword, the Leprechaun charity sword started. Um, Five hundred dollars. He went and put the, you know, the bed out 
to get it started. And uh, last night we already got another another raise for 600. So right right in the line, uh, waiting for the for the Batman movie to start. So the gauntlet has been raised and the gloves have come off. Uh, what do you think about that charity sword? I thought that was pretty impressive. Uh, it just added to the atmosphere. The whole thing, the way uh, the table that was set up out there in the lobby, you know, the T-shirts, you know, yeah. the, the sword. I mean, there's a lot. Like some people were just curious, and other people, it seemed like quite a few people understood what it what it represented. You know, the craftsmanship, and you know, it seemed like a quite quite a few uh, interested you know, uh, potential bidders. Yeah. We also had the uh, Joker of uh, face mask. That we had, uh, that we went ahead and did the silent auction for, and got 150 for. So thanks, you know, to those who actually bid on that. That was something too, wasn't it? Yeah, that was pretty sharp. But you know, it's nice to see people understand, you know, you know for instance, where the money goes. I mean, you have a, a silent auction. Yeah, you know, to understand, it, it's a good thing. Yeah. You know, and it's something. You know, you know, Batman's always going to be one of those characters that, that it's going to be around forever. That's true. That's true. I mean, 75 years already. Yeah. I mean, we saw some of the trailers from the original Batman cartoons last night. Oh, I know. That was awesome. And uh, I had never seen them before. I, I mean, they were before my time. I just said uh, they had, like, before the movie, they do, like, uh, cartoons from, from vintage things. And he pulled some really good vintage Batman uh, yeah, um, shows from, from way back when, black and whites. Yeah. And yeah, they were done extremely well. Yeah, that was that was very impressive. Violent at its best, you know. <laughs> That's true. But no, I, I I had heard that they were uh, earlier Batman classics and cartoon, but I never never saw them before. I haven't seen them before either. So it was like yeah. you know, uh, I think that was probably one of the most interesting things about the night yeah. was seeing these you know these uh, particular uh, smaller episodes that we could all enjoy together. Yeah, it was a nice touch. I mean, I, I expected when we went in there, they would go right into the movie, and then after the movie, then we would all just go out of there. But uh, the presentation was nice before that. The, like I said, the, the trailers, you know, from some of the earlier versions, uh, they were a lot of fun. Uh, like I said, every, everything was just—it was just a fun evening. Yeah, I love the punk, the punk thing at the beginning where they're all oh, screaming yeah. at us about what not to do in the in the theater. Otherwise, we're going to bang your head. It looked like a lot. It looked like a lot of SpongeBob characters on crack. Uh, you know, playing like um, like grunge rock, and it was pretty interesting because the words were all about like like <laughs> not, not talking, not uh, don't eat your candy wrappers, don't kick and the don't seat in front of you. So <laughs> we'll leave you outside and we'll run over you afterwards. Yeah, uh, that's, that was uh, we were laughing through that. That was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun. That's part of the whole fun atmosphere. And again, it's got the I think the fifties and sixties motif going on. Yeah, the definitely. It's a cult classic kind of. Yeah, and I noticed, like, looking at a lot of people there, a lot of the reactions, people were into it. I mean, people really had a good time. And it was a, a broad, a very very diverse age crew uh, crew that was there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there we saw some young people there. Yeah. We saw you know, yeah. older people. So, I mean, it was a good cross-section there. It showed, you know, that everybody having a good time. And, of course, as Leprechaun, what we're trying to do is obviously get the younger younger adults to uh, know what we're all about. Um, we get, you know, obviously the, the people who are older who know who we are, but uh, for some reason we've missed out on that younger crowd, and that's really why we're out there doing those kind of things. Yeah, you know, it's something, uh, being from Philadelphia, we have the longest-running convention in the country. I live 10 minutes from there, and up until 2004, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's something, you know, now that I, you know, I've become a big supporter of conventions. Uh, you are a convention connoisseur. 
uh, convention addict, more like. <laughs> um, but seeing what these are, I wish I really wish I would have known about these when I was a teenager. I mean, it's a great place, you know, when you're young to go I meet people that. from other areas, uh, to see your like your favorite stars, your favorite uh, writers. Um, yeah, I think back um, some of the some of the great writers that had, that came to Philadelphia, Isaac Asimov, uh, Clark. Yeah, I mean, there were so many of them. Yeah, I know we missed them. Yeah, my grandfather was a big fan of theirs, but uh, uh, obviously when I was six, I know he didn't know about conventions. You know, he's he's very old school. But it's something, you know, I, I tell people about it. I tell young people about them. And, you know, some of my friends, you know, some of my younger friends will go and they come back and say, you know, that was a lot of fun. I didn't know they were like that. You know, everybody thinks it's a geeky thing. Right, or it's right. like when they think geeky, they think like boring people, you know, not like, you know, nerd can be, nerdy can be funny. I mean, you yeah. see the Big Bang Theory, they, they have fun. Um, you don't always have to be, you know, the, the class stud, you know, the, the, the macho guy or girl. I mean, you could, you know, it's something everybody has a good time because there's something for everybody. And, and that's what the culture really, I think, is it, that to me is what it means. It is just all around, uh, you know, int- special interests, fun things to do. Yeah, and the thing too is with the conventions. If you go to a convention and there's something you want to see that hasn't been there, you can you can uh, up channel that to people. There's people there you can talk to, to to make suggestions, and if it's possible, if it's doable, you know, it's something that they they tend to act on. Uh, their conventions are always they're an always growing event. So it's one of those things where people are always looking, you know, you know, for something new, and the conventions are always looking to give it to them. We want to bring our, our show back to a little bit to uh, space because that's one thing we're talking about. And you think, well, gee, what, is, what does comic books and all that have to do with it? Well, because, you know, even though we love all this stuff, uh, there's a lot of other things that we, we can look for, and science is part of the geek experience. And... Uh, we talk about, well, how do you get away from it all? And so, you know, Don's a really good expert on that. <laughs> That's a great, uh, like, introduction here. Uh, Donald talks. <laughs> and talk about space. And, of course, we want to bring Michael in on that because, you know, he, he's been uh, flying a lot. And so uh, what better way to get away from it all than to go to the moon? Welcome to the moon, Alice. <laughs> to the moon, Alice. Yeah. All right. Um, welcome, everybody. Just a few news items to bring everybody up to speed for this this week. Actually, the last couple of weeks, SpaceX has probably been the biggest um, folks in the news in the last couple of weeks. A successful launch to the space station last week, and actually, from what we understand, a successful recovery of their booster. The first time in space history that anybody has, much less attempted but has actually been able to demonstrate the ability to recover a liquid-fueled rocket booster after launch. It's one thing to have these things drop out of orbit and fall into the ocean and bust up and, you know, like we did with the F-1 engine earlier uh, or late last year, they recovered one of the old engines that's been corroding at the bottom of the ocean. But last week, Elon Musk's team at SpaceX was able to actually have that booster come back to the planet, hover for eight section, session, seconds <laughs> over the ocean before dropping in. And this, I, I found it interesting that they succeeded in doing this in the middle of a big storm. That was impressive, yeah. I mean, it performed flawlessly in that regard. So the problems they had with their first attempt of the fuel sloshing around, apparently they, they clearly solved those issues. Also in the news, um, we had... SpaceX coming up and challenging 
uh, and requesting a court injunction to block Russian engine sales to the U.S. This is important because this affects a bidding process or the lack of a bidding process that uh, the Defense Department went through last week in awarding a contract to ULA for the delivery of, I believe it was uh, 20-some-odd, uh, let me get the number right here, um, it was for 36, I believe, launches of Defense Department satellites and projects into orbit. The contract was awarded to the ULA, United Launch Alliance, without so much as a buyer leave to the competitive bid process. Political games going on there. The only problem that SpaceX has is, besides the fact that they weren't asked to bid, was that the ULA is using Russian rocket engines. And in response to a lot of this, apparently the Russians got wind of SpaceX challenge to the bidding process, and in addition to that, the sanctions that the U.S. has been placing against Russia over the last few uh, months has triggered a response from space from uh, Russia where they where the guy gets on TV and tells us well if you want to get your astronauts to space use a trampoline trampoline that's right <laughs> uh, bounce so, this baby <laughs> oh man bounce it good bounce it talk about cutting your nose off despite your face we you did know, it again <laughs> well and, and I, don't, I don't think it was even us I, I think when there's all the political rigmarole going around in, in the Ukraine and I realize that there's a lot of, of nationalism going on both sides of that whole situation. I don't really understand the details. And I can understand Russia wanting to rekindle interest in their, in their federation. Um, there was some value to it in the old days, but communism didn't work for them. Uh, the centralized control didn't work. Um, but when it comes to space, yeah, Russia is our biggest partner in the space station. However... Um, I don't think space is something that deserves the um, undercutting and the political business as usual. We've got enough of that in the own U.S. Congress to, to cause us enough troubles. We don't need um, Russia to be adding to it. And, of course, along the same lines, we have to remember that recently there was an article released um, just uh, back on the uh, uh, 30th of April NASA inked a contract with Russia, Roscosmos exactly, to be exact, that the price per seat has gone up $8 million for our astronauts to get to the space station. How many frequent flyer miles is that? Oh, heavens. <laughs> well, it depends on if you're counting miles or if you're counting dollars spent. Either way, it's a boatload of miles. <laughs> um, we're looking at $70 million to send one man to orbit on a Russian Soyuz. Do you realize that that is $10 million more than a single entire launch of a SpaceX ship that, with a Dragon on top, could carry seven astronauts? Is that amazing when you do the math? I mean, it's just, it's, it's phenomenal, the differences in, in what things are doing. Now, Russia's got us over a barrel here. They're the only ones with a uh, man-rated craft capable of getting to the, to the space station. Um, if SpaceX were in a better position, or even Boeing with their CST-100, had 
their certification, we could be putting seven people in orbit uh, under SpaceX for barely um, 10 million apiece. Uh, Boeing, I think it would be closer to the to uh, 20 or 30 apiece, but it would still be far less than the 70 million uh, uh, piece that we're spending for astronauts to go over there. And then there's the additional costs. You know, the thing that we have to remember, though, is we're not really comparing apples to apples here. When we talk about paying $70 million for people to go to orbit via a Soyuz, part of that money isn't just for that launch. Part of that money is for extra training that our astronauts get in preparation for using the Soyuz. They can't get Soyuz training in the U.S. And so that $70 million per seat, a chunk of that goes towards the training that we pay for to be able to fly on the ship, much less just the launch. So that's an important thing to consider. Now, in the U.S., the contracts are written in a similar way, but we're still looking at a far less expensive price tag to get our astronauts into space. But that's still, even if SpaceX accelerates, and they're the closest one to delivery, we're still looking at a year out. And that's assuming they can achieve man-rated uh, functionality within, within the year. A um, couple of other things. Um, and again, with a slight political bent, or maybe perhaps an apolitical bent, is the Air Force's X-37B space plane. This is like a little brother to the space uh, shuttle, has now spent over 500 days in orbit. Quite I mean, how many of us even remember that it's up there? We don't know what it's doing. We have no idea what they're doing with whatever data they're, they're capturing. Everybody, we have a general understanding that satellites today can pretty much get the picture off a bikini from orbit. Um, so what do you think that spy plane could do? I mean, there's just, there's no end. As, as, a, as a sci-fi writer, what possibilities do you see in this? A plane like that could have a lot of capabilities. It could have military capabilities. Uh, it could have commercial capabilities. Um, we've told, in the past, there's been, you know, stories of what would happen if all your satellites were, were, were disabled. Um, through, whether through software, some sort of software virus. Well, the um, Independence Day film actually mm -hmm. brought that point to bear. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, in the case of an emergency, if you lost all, all your satellite communications, uh, you know, a plane like this might actually be like a backup, you know, almost like your Air Force One is for the president. This is your backup satellite capability for, for your critical functions. Mm -hmm. we, we depend on satellites literally for so much. GPS, cable, internet, most of these things go via satellite today where they used to go across transatlantic cable, they used to go across uh, lines, cable and phone lines transmitted via telephone poles and, and many people may not even know what a telephone pole anymore is. Um, it's, I, I was just realizing that one. I mean, how many of us actually see telephone poles anymore? We see power line poles. Mm -hmm. But how many of us actually recognize the difference between a power pole and a telephone pole? So the world is changing so fast. And in the space arena, we're seeing new updates come out almost on a weekly basis. And that's the reason for our show. Tonight also, there are a couple of uh, milestones. Uh, we had the death of um, an important individual in the early Apollo program. Um, 
His name was, let me get my notes up here, um, John Hubel. I don't know if you remember him, but back in the days of the Apollo program, he was the man who pushed for the lunar orbit rendezvous that was the inception of the idea of sending up um, the craft and having them join in orbit. And That's right, yeah. he wanted to, and you know, I was reading the article, and the intriguing thing was that it took nearly 10 or more years of him campaigning before they settled on that orbital rendezvous in order to set up the ship to be able to accomplish the Apollo landings. But uh, John, John Hubolt uh, passed on uh, this last week, as I recall. So hats off to this man. Uh, to another fellow, uh, we, have, we go to the PR arena. And uh, Virgin Galactic recently has been in the news. Uh, they're uh, part and parcel, one of the biggest tenants out at the new New Mexico um, oh, um, space launch site. Uh, Spaceport America, I think is what it's called. Mojave's here, Air and Spaceport, California as well. And uh, Virgin Galactic CEO George Whitesides has said that he vows to fly on the Spaceship 2 test flight coming up. And now, of course, my first question is, is why does that make the news? <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> why should this be news? I mean, Richard Branson has already said he plans to go up. Mm -hmm. I can understand that. He is the man. He is the yeah. guy who's been the front for Virgin Galactic for a long time. But why is, is this guy, who I don't really recall hearing before, uh, important enough to make it a point that he's going up on the test flight? I think it's more a sign of commitment that he he's determined to do this in his lifetime, and I think it, it shows us, uh, the commitment for financial backing. Uh, yeah, that, so I you guess, think Mr. Whiteside's coming up and saying he's going to go with uh, Richard Branson on the test flight? That's so a, very it's a corporate good commitment. Type yeah. Thing. Okay, that makes sense. That could make yeah. some sense. Um, in addition, we have a lot of other stuff going on in the in the space arena this year. This these last couple of weeks. Um, there's we they've discovered a new planet, exoplanet, uh, closer to Earth, Kepler. What was that? Kepler something or other. Um, that actually is in the habitable zone, and it's really a potential Earth. And the last article I saw uh, discussed the idea that they were actually trying to look for typical civilization things like radio waves and things like that. So that was exciting, especially since it had liquid water, or at least they suspect liquid water, which is intriguing. That so, leads you to a very interesting point, though. What's that? If a planet can support life, it probably does support life. So what would that life be? Exactly. And, of course, that's, that's where all the articles are going. Yeah. What are the questions and what things can we glean from the idea if they do, if it's capable of life and there is life there, what are we looking at? Are we likely to cause the, the grasshopper people from uh, uh, Independence Day to show up on our doorstep now? Well, <laughs> one thing you have to look at is if an alien came to our planet, we'd probably want a 
burning him at the stake or well, yeah. you know you know out of fear because he's a, it's a monster oh, yeah. you know we don't you know everybody talks about intelligent life until you actually saw a, an actual alien on your front porch and then all of a sudden shoot shoot the SOB well so. and, and look at the the race uh, the race identity and the national identities that we struggle with on this planet every single day Russia and Crimea for crying out loud yeah. Ukraine but, but you know what would happen. You think about this. Uh, a lot of you see a lot of these races unite against an alien race from another world because it's always you got somebody bigger to go after, and well, it's just yeah. like we see the same thing with countries. Mm-hmm. You know, they hate each other until there's a bigger enemy out there, right. and then we got to unite to beat up the bully. Well, World War One and World War Two mm-hmm. were both ex- uh, exceptional examples of that. Yeah. We look at Vietnam was was a political version of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Korea also a political version of the same thing. Nationalism. And, and public uh, version, again, built on propaganda rather than on the truth. Yeah. But, you know, too, another thing that people tend to overlook when you talk about going other worlds, being able to go there that are habitable, is what about diseases? Mm-hmm. There could be a disease that's on that planet is very weak and mild, but our immune system isn't designed to handle it. You know, we could wind up creating an epidemic for ourselves or create an epidemic that wipes out that race. Well, the original War of the Worlds story is based on the premise that a species comes to Earth to terraform it, Mm -hmm. to set it up, and instead is attacked without our even realizing it by the very microbes that have protected us for eons. That's right. And, you know, this this is an interesting segue to, to the next segment I wanted to address in that there's been a recent push in the media for people who have challenged the idea of us colonizing other celestial bodies, be they planets, be they moons, doesn't matter. There is this concern about keeping them pristine. For an example, there was a a hullabaloo a few weeks ago where people were challenging, saying, we want to protect the Apollo landing sites from people going in and pilfering or salvaging them. Well, okay, this brings up several questions. The first of which is, how are you going to protect it? What, you got some park ranger robot you're going to send up there and he's going to patrol all five sites, I think it was, four Mm -hmm. or five? And how's he going to get around that kind of distance? How's he going to go out faster? Do you know how fast the rovers go on the moon? This thing's the size of a Volkswagen. Do you know how fast it can go? Not very fast. It its maximum distance in a day, day, not a saw, but a day, 24 hours, is counted in feet. Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, there's our first problem. How are you going to patrol <laughs> these landing sites when they're so far apart? Okay, so we put one, one park ranger robot at each one. Okay, now who are you going to protect it from? Who are we protecting the Apollo sites from? And it says, darn Martians. Just darn pesky Martians. All right. Okay, the next question is, okay, the, Earth, the moon is a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Another point that was brought up in the discussion was we want to protect the environment of the moon. <laughs> okay, now I'm getting a little peeved. This is going way too far. It's hard vacuum. The only thing there is this, this glassy, three-pointed, sandy tight glass shards that are so tiny they get into anything. That's true. 
why would we want to protect something like that that is so anathema to any kind of life? Yeah, like you say, what do you want to protect it from? Exactly. Uh, when you think, think as far as like a lot of our space junk that's up there now, I mean, okay, you could, you could actually have, like, like, if you look at the commercial world, like a, like a, almost like a scavenger unit up there, uh-huh. you know, run by a couple of pilots just to go around and collect all that junk. And, you know, bring it back and recycle it. Yeah. The other thing being, too, and who do you charge? Who pays for that? How about the people that put it up there? They pay well, a fee, a garbage fee, for them to collect it. Well, you know, actually, there are uh, the international treaties. I was, I was actually looking at some of this stuff recently. And according to the international treaties, the government that put it up there is still, under those treaties, responsible for that piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. However... Once the piece of equipment is deemed destroyed, in other words, say it gets accidentally blown up by a missile in an anti-satellite test. Well, hey, the object's no longer there. Now it's in pieces. It's not ours anymore. We're not liable anymore. And that's how the treaty reads. They're responsible for the whole assembly, not they're the pieces. They're, they're responsible for the completed assembly, dormant or active, doesn't matter, but they're responsible for that. The challenge I have for that is, okay, then... It should either be moved out, and they have special orbits that are basically like salvage yards. There are actually there's actually a junkyard in orbit. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, that was one of the other things. There's a parking orbit up there that that stuff is when it goes where it can no longer function. There's usually a reserve of fuel that they try and use to raise a satellite to this parking garbage orbit so that it doesn't interfere with anything else. Now. I don't know if we even know how many pieces we've got up there. So these are other legitimate questions we have. But back to our, our original thing. Um, um, the, the other thing is, going back to the uh, environmentalist approach to celestial objects, they were talking about Mars as well. Well, we haven't seen any sign of life on Mars, but there are people making complaints that we need to protect the environment as it is. When for 40 years we've been talking about terraforming the place. So come on. <laughs> well, Give you me know, a break. You have to be realistic about it to the point that it's not, at some time Earth may be overpopulated and we may have to be Maybe able to... Maybe overpopulated? Come on. <laughs> I'm being kind. Uh, but if we were in that situation where we actually absolutely had to pioneer and colonize, uh, colonize other worlds, well, you, you have to learn fast. And we may not necessarily have the time to learn. So being able to do these things now, I mean, to me, this is a lot better than, uh, than the, world, the, the fighting that we have going on today's day. We spend a lot of money on war, uh, you know, a lot of money, you know, we just waste a lot of money where we really need to look at all the things that it's going to take to colonize in space, whether it's on a, a space station, a planet, um, uh, possibly even a mining station. Uh, you know, we right. see a lot of our research so far showed a lot of our meteors, you know, and such out there that there may a lot of a lot of the materials are the same materials we have here on Earth, mm-hmm. same minerals, same uh, metals. So in that respect, there's a lot of things that indicate we'll wind up doing some doing a lot more in space than we think. Oh, absolutely, and you know, I've. I've I've been a big proponent of space colonization or settlement. I think I think the more appropriate term is settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think colonization even applies. 
We're British not yet. Britain. Yeah, that's a later stage. Well, there because I think there's an important difference between colonization and settlement. Mm-hmm. In colonization, you're sending a group of individuals to another location, and they're planting a flag, as well as setting up a settlement. When you send people out to set up a settlement, they're not planting a flag. The assumption is they're carving out their space in the frontier, but it's their space. That's correct. It doesn't belong to the country back on Earth. It's their property now. It's their property. And so this brings up a new question. If these environmentalists want to protect these areas, well, the first question is, how are you going to enforce that protection in the first place? Second, if you send settlements up there, and according to the 67 Treaty, a government cannot own the land. And this creates a new paradox. If the government cannot own the land on the moon, or Mars for that matter, then the government cannot issue a license to a private person to own the land. That's correct. Therefore, they can't issue land grants. And one of the biggest pushes that that happened in the 1800s when they did the big land rush was that the government of the U.S. offered land grants to people who would simply settle the land after six months to three years, if they improved the land, it was theirs. Pay a processing fee and they're on their way. So the question comes, how might a similar land rush be done on the moon or on Mars? And you can't because we can't do, you can't, the government can't own the land. That's correct. So they can't cede it or deed it to anybody. Yeah, the only way I see any any kind of like settlement or even anything remotely close to a, a colonization would be uh, in a commercial aspect. Like uh, like for, like mining always comes to mind because there's you know the minerals are there, the ores that are there. Um, I could see like a mining company setting up, and would it be a permanent type of operation? Probably not. You know, st- uh, most mining operations typically stay for a while, take what they need, and when, when it's it's not cost-effective, they move on someplace else. Well, here's a question. You know, there there have been two styles. If I, if I look at most of the mining propositions that have been made, there's two styles of mining on the moon, or Mars. Uh, there is what I would term strip mining. Basically, you go down, you, you, you place a bulldozer on it, and you literally scrape the regolith off the surface, and that's what you're mining for your various different chemicals and products. Then there's, um, then there's the other mining, which I would call deep mining, mm-hmm. which is where you're going to dig into the ground or you're going to dig into the crater wall or a mountain, and you're going to start with tunnels, and you're going to be looking, you're extracting ore and all that kind of good stuff going from there. And there's, there are really severe challenges to both of those. The first one is, is that if you start on the moon, if we start close to home, what kind of issues are we going to run into right away? Well, one of the things, if, if you did some serious... And let's, let's start just with the robotic approach. Mm-hmm. Let's start just with robots first. What's, what's one of the issues you're going to run into right away? Okay, like we mentioned earlier, the makeup of the moon, the, the shards, the tiny shards, they get into any joint, they're going to destroy the metal, which uh-huh. is entirely, you know, eventually they'll destroy seals. Uh, you would think if it's robotic, it's going to have some hydraulics to it. Uh, it's going to be very cost-effective, you know. And top of that, your your robot technology is going to be short-lived. Exactly. So some mechanism for repair has to be put in place. 
Now, then you've got the issue with the robots that we've got on Mars or the moon. None of them have ever gone more than a few feet in a day. <laughs> and they're expecting to mine products and be able to transmit those products back to Earth. Yes. As a science fiction writer, where do you think economy in space is going to occur? Is it going to be from people mining the moon or mining Mars and then transporting this stuff millions of miles back to Earth? I think it's going to be more, they're going to have to mine something a little bit more valuable than, than what we have on the moon or Mars. Uh, just for, you know, a fictional possibility. Let's say you find a planet way out that's, um, that you can mine, let's say you can mine gold or some kind of metal that's got a whole lot of value to it on Earth, whether it's for, um, for uh, software purposes, you know, boards or something that, that would make that metal so valuable. And I think what you would see is almost like shuttles that they, a company would have to have maybe six or seven shuttles, maybe 10 or 20, who knows. As they load them up, you send them unmanned, program them to come back to Earth, and it's just like a, a train that would keep going on. Uh, the difference being, they wouldn't. It's not like they'd be sending them every 15 minutes. It might be every 15 months. They stay filled. They fill yeah, them but you up. know, here's here's the thing, and I, and I look at that, and I, I I would challenge that because I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's economically viable. It's one thing to be on the North American continent with a mine, and in that mine you produce ore, and say it takes you three months from the time you dig the rock out of the ground to the point where you've got a smelted ingot of whatever ore you're trying to produce. And, and I don't think that's unreasonable. Anywhere from a month to, to three months that's about to right. produce yeah. your, 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 your marketable, sellable ore. Mm -hmm. right? Now, you add to that now shipping time to go from the smelter to your customer. You're looking at, at minimum two weeks because most of that stuff is either going by water or by truck. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be sending ore on an airplane. No. no. Okay. So I sit here and I'm looking at this. If you're talking current technology has roughly a maximum landing size of cargo of 2,000 pounds. If you're sending pure ore down you're still looking at a cost 10 to 15 times of yeah. what you're paying for the same ore on Earth. That, that's where it would have to be something that would be so valuable. And then again, if it was something like, like what if it was like a gold or a silver or platinum, um, it wouldn't make sense to bring it to Earth. You, no. you'd be, you would be better off making like a central bank in space. Right. You know, where it stays there and everybody knows what's there. And they Well, and this is the thing that I keep coming across. And, and you brought up, I, I asked you about one of the very first problems you're going to run into in a mine, and that's the robotics, because on the moon you've got the dust and it's corrosive. Um, how might we solve that? Let's, let's put our writer caps on here, and let's, let's batter out a few ideas. How would we solve these problems to make a viable, let's say we, we're going to form a partnership here. We're going to put a settlement or a, a facility, let's call it a facility, on the moon, we're going to mine a two-fold process. We're going to mine the, the regolith. We're going to have a small collection of stuff that's going to mine the regolith for its oxygen and, and, and um, hydrogen and different things like that. And then we're going to process that. And most of what we're going to get out of the regolith is going to be our rocket fuel mm -hmm. because that's where it's mostly concentrated. 
But we're also going to get some of the trace elements of the other things, such as the platinum and the helium-3. And helium-3 is really valuable for fusion research. Okay? And for the sake of the discussion, we'll say that it's viable. Mm -hmm. It's rare enough on Earth, as I understand it, now you being a nuclear engineer would, would know this for sure, the only way they can get helium-3 nowadays, they've pretty much exhausted the natural sources. That's so right. The only place they can get it from is decommissioned nuclear weapons. That's where the demand has come in for a lot of these negotiations. Right. So, supposedly, the lunar regolith holds a bucket load of helium-3, which there's there are people saying that there's billions of dollars to be earned by collecting that and shipping it down to Earth. So, okay, there's our goal. So, in addition, we'll be mining um, hard elements from the various different rocky areas. There's a lot of stuff down in the Shackleton Crater area on the southern poles, a lot of good uh, metals, titanium, platinum, those type of things. So, we've got, we've got some options here. So, we pick a landing site, and on this landing site, we've got both a, a good, sizable plains area for, for regolith collection, and we've got a nice big mountain over here, crater, whatever it is, so we're going to mine there. So our very first problems are, as you point out, I think is the, the single biggest issue, is how do we keep our robots going? How are we going to repair them? We've run into this problem a lot in the Middle East with the sand over there. The sand is so fine okay. in the Middle East. Uh, jet engines... We go through a lot of costly repairs because of it. Um, How do they address it in, in, in the Middle East? Uh, they, do they use robots to repair the airplanes? No. Uh, oh, okay. uh, still, uh, still a little else from the North Pole. <laughs> but uh, no, pretty, pretty much um, the, the weather is very limiting for a lot of the aircraft. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the A-10 aircraft, which I was very familiar with, um, used turbofans. Okay. So they were less susceptible to damage uh, you know, from the sand. Uh, Pretty much what would happen, as soon as the planes came down the ground, you had to get the engines covered up. Uh -huh. uh, because the, the sand over there, you have to experience it to, to know I'm talking about. It's like baby powder. It's uh -huh. so fine. Um, you could have goggles on, and it would still get in your eyes. I mean, it's okay. just so fine. So this is stuff that's going to be very similar to what we're looking at on the moon. Right. So if we have problems, like some of the problems we encountered here, it's going to apply up there. So then, so then my next question is, is could we, if we're in the mining business for the moon, can we build a robot that can repair other robots? And how long it, would that repair robot last? I think well, the <laughs> only way, I think you would almost have to have like a garage. Okay. Uh, to do the repairs in. Have a robot go out just to latch on to the broken piece of equipment, pull it in, and close the door, you know, and then, uh, you know, pressurize it, you know, oxygenate it, and then uh, do the repairs well, from there. Wait a minute, wait a minute. If, you, if you've got robots, why would we need to oxygenate or pressurize? Because uh, I, I don't think there's some repairs that I don't think robots can do. Uh, sometimes with circuitry. I mean, if you're talking about doing a, like a repetitive motion, a robot's good for that. If you're just going to so pull... So assembly of a circuit board, yeah, a robot could do that. Yeah. If you're talking about just pulling a section out and replacing with another section. But if you're talking about uh, you have a hydraulic line that, that's split, well, to take that line out and put another piece in there, it's not going to be that easy for a robot to do. Uh, well, spe yeah, with, a, with yeah. hydraulic lines, you're going to have yeah. leakage. You're going to have, if the line is split, you're going to have uh, these hydraulic fluids actually floating in the environment. It's yeah. going to get on the other robots. That's going to cause corrosion issues. Um, wow, yeah. I, I, I hadn't considered that as an issue. Are you yeah. suggesting then that we have to have people there? 
there's there would have to still be people there, and I would think it would probably have to be more of a manned robot, okay. uh, like a like almost like a mini ship, uh-huh. that when something breaks down, because you're talking these are going to be big pieces of equipment, big yeah. uh, big robots. I mean, they're not. We're talking easily the size of of uh, uh, what? Yeah, uh, what's the robot on Mars now? The big one, Curiosity. Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I know. We've got three of them operational that I know of. Spirit, Curiosity, and Opportunity. Spirit and Opportunity were the smaller ones mm-hmm. that have been there a couple of years. That's right, yeah. And Curiosity is the current, currently active robot. So Curiosity is about the size of a, of a Volkswagen. So you're suggesting that we need something big enough to house at least one of these robots in a repair bay. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I agree with you. I think that makes sense. But you're also suggesting that we, we're going to have to have boots on the ground. Yes. Because the, the kind of repairs that we're going to need to make. Well, that, this changes the whole ballywick. We're going to need a whole boatload of different kinds of investors for this. Yes. We're going to need man-rated aircraft, uh, spacecraft to get us there, mm-hmm. to get them there. We're going to need man-rated spacecraft to get them home. Or is this a one-way trip? There's another or, question. Or these and end up maybe yeah. 10 pieces of equipment, use two at a time or three at a time, and then just when one breaks... Uh, but see, that's not, even, that's not even productive. No, it's not. And that's where, you, that's where you run into... It's, it's a matter of, do you just want to try to do it to say you did it, or do you want a commercially viable operation? Yeah, and, and, and I don't think we can build enough robots that can be autonomous, autonomous enough and have enough people on the ground whose sole purpose mm-hmm. is to repair them. Because yeah. if you, let's say, let's say, let's just take some numbers out of the air. Let's say you got 10 robots. And that your average breakdown in the lunar environment is going to run maybe a couple of days. So you got 10 robots, you're going to be repairing a robot every day, at minimum. Yeah, at first, the first six months you might be okay. But you're going to be After building that. up damage, but it'll still they'll still function. Right. Once you get, I would, you know, just and I'm, I'm it, it, it depends on the equipment, the metal, uh, every all the makeup. But uh, three to six months, you you probably be okay with maybe minimal breakdown, you know, occasional. But, but once this you get past that, another question now. Okay, so we got a man, we've got a person on the ground repairing robots, and we'll just say there's just one guy there. Mm-hmm. What's he going to eat? What's he going to drink? Where's his supplies going to come from? What if he's sick? And what if he's sick? Yeah, you need you would need a team. I mean, you, I would How say how big a team do you think? I would say at least four people. At least four. They'd okay. have to have medical skills as mm-hmm. well as technical skills, so they'd have to be uh, very expensive people. Let's put it that way. A lot of training yeah. would be invested in them because they're going to be like jack of all trades. How do we supply them? How Good often? Point. Yeah, how, and that that brings up another question: when you leave people in space. For uh, how much time, based on the size of the group, can people function socially, right. uh, mentally? Uh, you know, you know, we've seen signs where sometimes uh, uh, people could, you know, you spend time in a, in a room by yourself for right. a long period of time, you could lose your mind. Oh yeah. So you leave somebody in space. Um, like I saw it when we first went to the well, Middle East. Uh, some people adapted to it real well. Some mm-hmm. people, it really bothered them being so far from home. They were on right. the other side of the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, to some of us, it's like, what's the difference if you're 15 minutes or 15,000 miles? It, what's the difference? You're away. Right. But, but there are people who get homesick very deeply. Yeah. They they see, mentally, they see this distance, this, yeah. this great distance. It's like 
are you comfortable swimming in a swimming pool versus swimming in the middle of the ocean where it's miles and miles deep? You know, <laughs> you might be the best swimmer in the world in, 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 a, in a swimming pool or on a river. I can, I can see a meeting room at NASA where the engineers have been sitting there pondering these very questions for the last 30 years since Apollo completed and struggling to come up with some way to make this all work. And clearly they haven't come up with any way. Right. The human, the human Does that mind suggest is... that a base temporarily habited, supplied direct from Earth, is not economically sound? It's if they haven't been yeah. able to come up with some plan that could be economically sound in 40 years, mm -hmm. does that suggest it's not possible? I think it's possible, but I think right now there's too many limiting factors. Like, let's say Such you, as? Let's say you put together a team of six people to go up there. All, All right. six people, you spend a lot of time studying them, putting them through rigorous training to make sure that they're going to be able to handle this being in space for uh -huh. whatever period of time, a month, three months, a year. And they go up there, and one goes wacky. One loses his mind. And all of a sudden becomes irrational. You right. can't trust that that person anymore, and you don't know. We saw it. some of this in the film John Carpenter's The Thing. Yes, you that's had right. several yeah. people in an isolated environment. Mm -hmm. There was no supplies coming except on on cycles of of multiple months between deliveries. You had a threat, a a life threatening threat, mm -hmm. and these people were cracking up. Yeah. You then had the distrust, the, the bread. Yeah. What if one goes around and starts killing people? Or yeah. if you have a mixed uh, mixed genders, mm -hmm. what if the one starts assaulting the uh, you know the others? Uh, this you this you, kind yeah. of thought prompted me to consider another route. Yeah, it does. It's it's one that really leads you to, to uh, think about. Uh, a yeah. lot to think about here. Um, because you know if. So, so then you come back to the idea of, well, we'll just send robots. Uh, but robots can't repair themselves. Okay, well, we've got to send a person. But you can't send just one. You've got to send five or six. But if you send five or six and one goes bonkers, now you're back to the hold and you're, you're stuck in this vicious circle. Yeah. Now, if you were to – for instance, if I, was, if I was going to be involved in a project like this, I would want a team with me, uh, regardless of the size of people, that I knew for a long time that we had to trust. In other words, like, so that if I was up, let's say, on a space station with them, if I started to lose my marbles, uh, that somebody could sit me down and say, hey, remember the old days? Remember we played ball? Mm -hmm. Just somebody to, to, to stabilize me and get me back to a, a ground zero. Right. Um, if you're up there with people that you've only known for a year or two since you started this training, they can't relate you to anything that's going to bring you back to, you know, back to this stable That's an point. Interesting, interesting observation. Um, but I've also noticed that, and, and again, my experience in this is limited to what I see on TV and in the movies. But I've noticed, um, do you remember, did you see Sandra Bullock in Speed? Yes. The original film. I saw Speed. And do you remember the end of the film? She makes a comment to Keanu and says, relationships based on traumatic circumstances never last, right? That's right, yeah. But I've also been in the military. Mm -hmm. And I've seen military films. And I know that friendships between men, actually between comrades, we'll mm -hmm. say it that way, bonds between comrades who go through a traumatic event like that True. become very, very strong. Male to males, I think, are different than females. Male to males are different than females, but, but both sexes have a bonding process that happens when going through something traumatic or mm -hmm. when they have a similarly shared 
experience, and they can bond in that regard. And that leads me to, to perhaps a, a different approach. And we, we remember the Mars Inspiration Project, uh, Mars One. These are all projects that, well, Mars Inspiration is the one I, I guess I'm thinking of. Inspiration Mars? No, Inspiration Mars is the couple flying flyby, right? It's Mars One. Mars One is the one-way trip. Mm-hmm. Now, you do know that there were over 400,000 people responded saying they wanted to go. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, I happen to know that most people would say, oh, yeah, that sounds like fun. Let's go. And you get 400,000 of them in a big auditorium, say say in the, the Superdome somewhere. Sales numbers suggest that if you've got 400,000 people, 10% of those, even though they all said they're somewhat interested, 10% of those are going to be the ones that are going to be willing to go to the next step. That's right. A lot of people, it's a dream, have, and it's yeah, only going to be a dream. Exactly. And it will they stay like it a dream. Way. They like their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. They're comfortable, and they want to stay there. So if we figure there's five layers to this 10% thing, if you start out with 400,000 people who say they're willing to go, you lop off the first 10%. Well, that takes us down to 40,000 people. Mm-hmm. Now, out of that 40,000 people, you take 10%, which leaves us with 4,000 people. Mm-hmm. You take 10% of 4,000, leaves you with 400. 10% leaves you with 40 people. That's at four layers down. Mm-hmm. Typical sales figures say that if you have 400,000 people who may show an interest in a product, by the time you get three or four layers down, you're going to find a group of people interested who will actually pay the money. And I think that's what we've got here. Out of those 400,000 people, we got 400,000, 40,000, 4,000, 400. I think we got 400 people out of that 400,000 that would actually, when it comes down to it, when the rocket engines fire, be okay with going. That's right. And be equipped to do that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of psychological work that goes into this to prepare somebody for that. But, you know, I, I also wonder, when we go back and we look at the history, mm-hmm. and you look at, the, the two that I like to look at the most are, are the pilgrims migrating to America, and then the uh, people that migrated westward from the early colonies. These people threw everything away, packed up what they could carry, and left. This, they knew it was one way. They knew it was life-threatening. There was no turning back. And, in, and here is something that very few people know. Of the millions of people who migrated to the United to the New World and the millions of people who traveled west in the 1800s, fully 75% of them died en route. That's right. Those ships, that, those ships that left Europe, many of them didn't make it here. Well, the not only that, there, but... The passengers on the ships died of, of scurvy, consumption, uh, yeah. seasickness for it crying was a long, out loud. Long voyage, six months in, yeah. in many cases. And in yeah. fact, when you look at the wagon trains, the typical travel time was six months till you got to your claim. Even the ones in Oklahoma who had their wagons on the starting line when they fired the pistol and off they went. You know, you still yeah. were committed for six months or more before you were at a position to do anything. 
And that's what, you look at the time frame that all this started with, with colonization here in America. This is what made America so strong at the outset because these people had to have a will of steel oh, yeah. to, to survive. I mean, they, a lot of them, they saw a lot of their friends and family die, but they, there was no turning back. Yeah. And there was no giving up. I mean, if you gave up, you, know, you were dead. Exactly. And this is, this is where I think that NASA is no longer serving us. I agree. Um, and not because, not because there is a particular will to not serve the people in this regard, no. but because they're a government entity based on government bureaucracy. But there's also another factor, and that is their ability to process risk. Yeah, I think overall, the people that work for NASA, they have, you know, they, they have they, the will. They want to succeed, mm-hmm. but they're handcuffed. Uh, they're bound by administrative procedures. Like I say, there, there, there's the risks. Um, uh, there's, there's, there's so many things come into play. It's all because it's a government entity. It's got government shackles. And we're seeing that SpaceX, on the surface, mind you, we don't know what's going on under the thing, and this push, this political and litigation push that Elon Musk is going through makes me a little nervous. Um, I'm not sure this is wise right now, to be challenging the the hand that's feeding his entire development process. But I do think that what they have demonstrated is that their evolutionary approach to building their rocket to go to the moon and then to Mars makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But when we go back to this problem of how we're going to establish a base, We've already recognized that you've got a big issue when going to the moon first. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go to Mars, well, you've only got two other minor issues. One is that you're looking at a six-month trip, and the cosmic, collected cosmic radiation is going to kill you before you get there. That's a good point. Or yeah. potentially <clears throat> make it impossible to survive long enough for the next ship to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's... That's worse than the moon, in my mind. You're, yeah. you're so far away. There is no uh, treatment for radiation yeah. poisoning. You would almost need to have supply points at, along, the, the way. At, along the way. And you would, but once again, you would have to have people there. How do you supply those supply points? Do you well, have not people only that, there? but just going back to the first issue, and that's the radiation. Mm-hmm. How do you curtail the issue of the radiation? And I've actually got an idea for that, but we'll, we'll cover that another night. But let's go back to just the moon. All right. We know that in three days we can get to the moon fairly safely. We don't have to worry about the radiation too much. But when we look at the moon, we do have to worry about radiation for an ongoing issue. If you've got people out there, you've got to put them into some sort of a habitat that they're going to survive in. They've got to be able to live in. It can't be too cramped. We can't be putting two people in a lunar landing module and help expect them to stick it out for six months. Not yeah. going to happen. I mean, we're going to end up with two dead guys in, within a month. <laughs> That's like getting locked in the bathroom and everybody forgets about you. <laughs> well, you, you know, that's a good point. The limb was about the size of a bathroom for two people. Yeah. And you consider all the functions that we take for granted every day. Showering, shaving, brushing your teeth, using the toilet, having a desk to work on. Um, I, 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 there is this picture in my mind of two guys standing in the lamp. They both got a pad computer. They're standing back-to-back because there's no other room. And they're both running experiments on their pads. And they're sitting here, but they can't move. 
There really yeah. isn't enough room to do anything inside the lab. And I can't see that being possible on, uh, on the moon. No, I mean, you, have, you don't need your muscles atrophying on you. I mean, you, no. have to, you have to be able to move. Exactly. You've got to have the ability to, and, and this is interesting, on the, on the ISS, they've got that, that bungee cord treadmill. You've seen that. Yeah. And that at least puts some pressure at the shoulders. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't transfer the pressure at multiple points along the skeleton. That's right, yeah. Now, maybe they're working towards that direction, which would be a good thing to do. Yeah. But here's the bigger, broader picture that I'm trying to get to. You didn't know I was leading the discussion at all, did you? Oh, sure. I um, did. <laughs> we, we've already discussed that robots by themselves are problematic. People by themselves are also problematic. Spacesuits just... Even at eight hours a pop, it takes you two to three hours to get into the doggone thing. Yeah. That makes a day, that's a 14-hour day, six of which you're sitting around not able to do anything because you're pre-breathing or unbreathing out of the space you to get back in your habitat. Now, we've seen bases that suggest that, okay, you drop this tin can on the surface of the moon, and then you bury it. And I'm sitting thinking, okay, how are we going to bury that? Mm-hmm. How are we going to have robots operate long enough without humans there to repair it to dig multiple tons of regolith and get it to stick on top of the habitat? Yeah. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah. Well, if we back up a little bit, you know, we talk about the rovers. Uh-huh. Uh, they seem to be functioning pretty well, but they're not turning up. The, I mean, I know some, sometimes we drill for samples, but we're talking small-scale drilling. Um, oh yeah, we're talking yeah. we're talking centimeters in, in diameter. Yeah, and um, I said if there's anything that that could be taken from that is that there if if there's a way of designing a, a robot to work in that condition, it's going to be something a little bit unique to what we have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, what the, the the way we dealt with it over in the Middle East with the sand was um, basically just covers and you know the type of aircraft used the type of engine. Well, um, but then I'm going to challenge that. Because I'm going to say, if we're in a commercial enterprise, it is not practical, it's not economically viable to the profit motive for us to build a robot the way NASA built it. You're talking 10 years of design, development, and testing for something that's going to survive, okay, on Mars, it'll survive maybe a couple of years. On the moon, you might get a year out of it. Now, another problem you have, too, is you're going to have different groups designing different parts of the robot. You yeah. may have one team working with the, uh, the arms, you know, uh-huh. and the, uh, whatever it has for a base for legs or, or tractors or what. Uh, another might be doing the, uh, uh, the, the brains of the, yeah. of the robot. And but you're going to get people with different ideas of how the thing should function. And then you've got to spend a year or two or three in mission integration, bringing mm-hmm. these disparate pieces together. What if... What if, as a business, we went a different direction? What if we reversed the direction? Instead of trying to build something that's ultra-robust, what if we did what commercial businesses do today? We build it to break. We build it so that it will last a month. You, you, You build this thing bare bones, you put it out there, it does its job, and it gets to a certain point and it limps back to the shop. You replace a few cheap parts, 
you throw some basic plastic bearings in there and you send it back out and it does its little mouse thing and, and thing and works for another month and then comes back. Wouldn't that make a whole lot more sense economically? Yeah. Let it break down? Yeah. Instead of trying to brute force it? And you're, you're, you've already planned for it, so you, you're expecting it. You have your parts on hand to replace it. Yeah, and the other thing, too, like we talked about earlier, like with the hydraulics, with the lines, mm -hmm. I mean, there's probably different, like, like a lot of the people I, that I know out there, I talk to some people that are very, very intelligent, a couple very big into robotics, and sometimes you have to think outside the box on these uh -huh. things, too. And like I said, we, you know, the obvious thing that comes into mind is, is like hydraulics, um, you know, there's... But, you know, but there's, as I understand it, Curiosity doesn't have any hydraulics. That's it's right. And, all servos. And that's and that's the thing too. Now you could because you could open the door to other possibilities. Uh, servos may be good. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the things that comes into play is the temperature band that you're going right. to see how hot, how cold. Um, I think it's like anything else. There's a way. There's always a way to do something. You just have to think of it. Right. And unfortunately, I think the thing I like about like maybe a situation like SpaceX is it's commercial. So they, they they can think outside the box. They're right. free to roam wherever their mind takes them. They're not bound them. by the risk assessment that the government is bound by. Correct. And the government's going to want to use some of the same uh, theory, some of the same mm -hmm. philosophies that they've used before. Why reinvent the wheel? We already got a round wheel. Right. Use this or round wheel. the not invented here syndrome. Right. Uh. So, and I think, like I said, if, if you have a good team of people working on that, they can work together. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, like I said, when you have different groups working on the different parts, Everybody has to know what the final product is going yeah. to be because if you're thinking, oh, I just got to build a couple arms and maybe a, a mobile base, uh -huh. and the next guy's thinking, well, I just got to build a torso for this thing that maybe you can uh, drill down through the middle and then mm -hmm. uh, eject, uh, you know, whatever it drill, you know, yeah. does a strat out the back. Um, you know, he's thinking maybe this thing's going to be like 15, 20 feet tall. And I mean, but when you put everything together, well, maybe the thing, the maximum it could be is 20 feet. Right. Well, if this guy needs five feet down here and this guy needs five feet up here, you need 20 feet in the middle. Now, you know. You've got, and, you've got disparate systems and, and now. People take a lot of pride in what they do, so nobody's going to want to give on this. Right. And if somebody gives, well, I can get you three feet, but you've got to give me three feet. Well, I can't. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's almost like you have to have one person guiding the project, almost like telling everybody, each of your groups, each of your entities, what they're going to do. And accepting feedback from them to make sure all the all the parts mesh, and the way like particularly the government they don't work that way. It's, they're very departmentalized. Right. You know, they have a department to oversee the department that oversees the other departments. Isn't that kind of what we were saying about how conventions are really when the ones that really work are the ones that somebody is in charge and have a vision and, and continue with it? Yeah, you you have what I call momentum, business momentum. Uh, or decision momentum. You, you, you pick a path, and as the path develops, your possible options begin to narrow. Mm -hmm. And when those options narrow to a certain point, you lose all, all possibility of thinking outside the box because now you're, you're triple-walled inside that box. Mm -hmm. You can't even see outside the box, much less work outside it. This is why I... I started thinking about a completely different approach. What if we didn't think about commercialization first? What if we looked at the idea that, okay, we said robots are going to need people to repair them. Okay, that makes sense. Commercial viability, definitely issue. That makes pragmatic cause and effect results. The people 
have got to have an environment. They've got to have air. They've got to have food. They've got to have water. Okay, so, okay, yeah, we'll spend $5 billion per delivery to get food, supplies, and air, and expeditional rocket fuel up there for them to use. Now i got a new problem. When you're spending billions of dollars to send supplies to an outpost of four people, is it, uh-uh. is it really? This is not commercially worse. viable. Right. So that brings me to the conclusion that we can't start with a commercial business. We have to start with a true settlement where people go to live and survive first. That's the only way it would make sense. Um, one of the things that would be important with it, that would give them the opportunity. Uh, to develop some of the resources, if they can, like hydroponics, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to start providing some of their own food and water, um, you know, being able to reuse a lot of their, um, you know, their supplies. So, you know, we hear different things, like when people, you know, are stranded on an island, some of the things they're able to do to survive. Oh, yeah. Um, but for it really to be commercially viable, you would have to have, a, like, basically a colony. And I think the way for a colony to succeed, it has to be a pretty good-sized colony because... Uh, the way a society, any any group survives, if you send a group of four, they're probably going to wind up killing each other after six months. They're going to be tired <laughs> of looking at each other. You send a group of ten, after six months, they're probably going to want to kill each other. If you send 50, maybe uh, 75 or 100 people, which now it's a bigger project, but it, it actually constitutes more of a colony, you get more into like a natural selection where men can meet Some, the women. Yeah. Um, they can develop relationships. and you know. Well, let's, let's back up a bit, though. What if... I acknowledge, and, and, and I agree with you, that after six months, your first crew of four or even ten are going to be at each other's throats. Absolutely. No argument there. Even if they've got the Internet and TV and all these different things. Take your college. Different. You get tired of your roommate after yeah. three weeks. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember the jokes got played on me at college. Oh, I doubt it. Didn't take me three weeks. Um, but what if, what if we took what if we, what if we took an approach... That starts with small teams, but that doesn't wait six months for another team. In other words, let's say you start with, well, okay, we're limited on two factors. The Soyuz can only send three. Mm -hmm. The Dragon can send seven. Okay. The The Boeing CST can send seven. Now, if we've got the potential for seven people in a trip, three is definitely way too small. You're not right. going to survive three months with three people. Yeah, three is not company. <laughs> no. Uh, but seven might actually be doable. For the short for, term, yeah. For the short term. Three to six months, yeah, they might yeah. survive. They're still going to be on edge by the time yeah. you put another team in. But knowing that there's there's going to be more, more people, people coming, yeah, new ideas. That's going to make a big yeah. deal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so if you send teams of the maximum capacity of the capsule, which would be seven at this point, mm-hmm. you send teams, say, four or six months apart, and they just boom, 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 boom. You could, in, in, in two years, you're, you've got 28 people living there. Yeah. Which is almost a solid core. Yeah. And at that point, like with anything else, this, is, this would be a, new, a new, whole new concept of right. trying this. And that's something they would almost have to evaluate uh, week by week. I mean, maybe 28 is an ideal number. Maybe 60 is an ideal number. Maybe 150 is an ideal number. We don't know. Well, I think there's a point that you, you've got to start with an embryo. Mm-hmm. When we look at life as it develops, it starts from 
the egg of whatever form it is, whether it's embryo or whether it's a hard egg, and you grow with a certain number of cells. Uh, first cell divides to two, then you go to four, then to eight, etc., etc. Why not take the idea of a settlement and build it the same way that life builds? You start with a handful of people, and then you double that, mm -hmm. and then you add some more, and then you yeah. add some more. See, that, I think that would work because, once again, if you get tired of the people around you, you know there's more coming. Right. Um, and we think like, um, okay, but going well, back Not only that, but each team that arrives brings supplies tailored based on the prior team's observations. Right. So you're not sending the same stuff each time. Yeah. I mean, they're also going to be bringing news, different things to stimulate mm -hmm. the mind. Like, hey, what's going on on Earth? You know, what's the latest? Who won, uh, who won the World yeah. Series? Just uh, trivial things. Well, now, news and stuff, though, they're going to have full access. I mean, they've got the... Uh, orbital internet now. I mean, you can transfer that data. You're talking less than three light seconds in distance. So the internet is there. Oh, you that's can, good. You can Skype from the yeah. moon to Earth and back. You can Skype conversations and have a conversation with your ex-girlfriend over there who's got your illegitimate boy, right? Yeah. And she, <laughs> you can tell her how much you're making this month so she can get collected. Really? Yeah. Well, actually, no, she can't because his money doesn't exist on Earth. That's right. There goes back to our whole question about nationalism and, and uh, uh, political borders and, mm -hmm. and things like this. How is Earth in any way, shape, or form going to ex exert any enforcement possibility on these seven, 14, or 28 people living on the moon? So it's going to be Especially if you're not planning on coming back. Absolutely. I'm going to interject here and just remind you that we're, we're on the like, last 20 minutes here. And uh, that if you have want to talk to these guys and want to interject and get your 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 word in here, uh, which should be interesting. Seven one four two four two five one four five. And then of course, like I said, you also put in chat. If you don't want to call in, uh, that's fine. Just put it in the chat below the information about the show, and I will interrupt both of them and actually uh, let them know that you have guys have a question. Uh, again, if I give about last 20 minutes here. Now, one of the things, uh, for several years I worked as a nuclear applications engineer, and that was a really, really rewarding job because I would look at things like people would tell me a problem they have, especially in the nuclear industry, about, okay, this is what we got. It doesn't work real well. What can you do? So you do? deal with radiation every day then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and not always. I mean, some of the things... You know, they're not quite, you know, radiation. They're things right. that support the equipment. Uh -huh. um, but you look at things, and um, you look at the limiting factors. You look at, basically, you figure out what you have to work with, and how do you make the optimum piece of equipment to work in that environment. And uh, one of the things I was able to do, I, like, I, I developed a, 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 what they call a tip system for the reactors, and the, the boiling water reactors, a travel and core uh, probe system. Um, you know the company I worked for. They were known for doing the um, the flux mapping system. Okay. You know they're all basically movable. Flux mapping, not flux a flux mapping. converter. No, nah, flux, flux <laughs> mapping, and it's just basically uh, it's in core monitoring. Okay. And um, but along the way, I started seeing other things that they had issues with, and uh, I was able to develop things like, for instance, like limit switches used to be um, with micro switches and plungers. Uh, I developed a you know a, a magnetic uh, like a magnetic switch. Uh, Oak Ridge Laboratories uh, um, certified it for me, and we started putting it in several of the plants. Um, okay. A lot of the old electronics that they used, I, I developed uh, like state-of-the-art solid-state uh, uh, sections that were like, you know, like you could pop, plug and chug, 
pull the, pull the one drawer out, pop the new one in. Oh, hot and swapping. Worked, yeah, yeah, and it's worked. The PC injury is called hot swapping. Yeah, okay. and it worked, worked just like the old one. And um, when I first started doing this, my boss thought I was crazy. He's like, you know, you know, you're not going to be able to do all this, or we're not going to be able to sell it. And then, uh, you know, I got prices on it. I would travel to the different plants, and I would actually take a working model. They would plug it into their equipment, and they would try it. And it was such a, a step up from what they had. You know, whether it be from a maintenance point, from an engineering point, and the reliability. And the, the other thing was, too, if something failed on it, it was easy to replace. It was set up to be user-friendly. Uh-huh. And we sold a lot, of, a lot of pieces of equipment, and they were pricey. And the, it, it, the whole, I guess the, what, I'm, what I'm getting to here is that uh, application engineers, uh, they're probably more valuable than any kind of engineer you have out there because they're trained to, to, to find solutions. In other words, like if somebody said, I need something to replace the car. The car doesn't work anymore because we don't have gas anymore. Well, an application engineer has to think about, okay, what do you use for transportation? You're limiting fact that you don't have gas. What do you have? Uh, what can you use? You know, what are you going to roll on? Um, so it, it's rewarding because that's where you officially get to develop new things. And uh, you have a company behind you that's going to market it. And uh, that's why I think like a company like SpaceX, I think they're in the same boat because their people are free to think. Right. Like you have 10 guys that can propose, hey, I think I got something for this engine. And somebody else says, well, I got something too. Well, they can put them all out there on the table, look at it and say, you know what? These are all good. This one I think is the best. It's the most cost-effective, user-friendly from a maintenance standpoint and the reliability factor. I mean, all these things come into play. Not when only you're that, deciding. but they could, if they've got all these different pieces sitting out there, they can say, you know, this is great, and it's probably the best one of the bunch, but if you took this piece from this one to this piece for this one, you get something that's even better. That's right. And that's where your teams come into play because mm-hmm. uh, it's got to be the type of thing where that, that company's got to encourage teamwork because if it's more like, well, I developed this, I got a bonus, these guys didn't get a bonus, well, yeah. now it becomes a dog-eat-dog. Well, I don't want them using anything for my my gizmo on their gizmo, you know. Well, and, and, and you know, grants, because most of most of the technology development today is based on grants, mm-hmm. and grants come from either corporate or uh, government sponsors, and they're all about the prestige that comes from achieving and, and, and receiving the grant and then the prestige of being able to publish relative to that. And if your name isn't on that, that report that you're publishing, then yeah. you're left out, left holding the bag. Yeah, and that's where it gets tough. Try yeah. to draw that line. It's like I say, if you have a team aspect you know, within your company to, yeah. to you know, focus on these things, you know, the team success is more important. It's like a baseball team or, right. or any, any sports team. You pick up the free agent for a boatload of money, yeah. Well, he's still not going to win by himself. Everybody uh-huh. else has to win with him. Right. And that's a concept that we rarely see it ever work. I you know. know. Most of the time, it does more damage than good. Yeah. Um, we we tend to be a selfish species. Yeah. And I and the thing too is most companies make you sign a, you know a, a document that you anything that you develop you, you, there exactly you, you, programming you, the same way. Yeah. So it, which you know that that makes a lot of sense and it, it kind of avoids somebody wanting to go out and get their paper published on what they just did. Yeah. You know. You know. It, it does help, help in that respect, but uh, I do think, like I said, companies that, that reward their people for are gonna, success are going to go a lot bar- yeah. farther. And you can't so. you can't get into a situation like I know with like with the, the like with NASA, they're committed to a deadline. They have to meet that deadline, or it's the end of the world. Right. SpaceX has a problem. They say, guess what? We're postponing the flight. We'll do it maybe yeah. next Tuesday. Maybe we won't now, do it next Tuesday. 
Okay. Now, here's a question for you. Just uh, we got just a few minutes left. I'd, I'd like to throw a few things at it. As, an, as a nuclear engineer, you probably follow the, the nuclear industry, so to speak. And do you keep up with what NASA's been doing? Because they were developing, uh, what do they call them, um, ASRGs? Um, the the pow- the nuclear powered the nuclear power plants they were using for a lot of the satellites uh, and the uh, spacecraft that went went out to the outer planets were powered by a um, it's a a thermal pile I think mm-hmm. is the right word is that right where you have a piece of fuel in a disk of some sort and the heat that it generates by its nuclear decay is picked up by thermocouples in an area in the wall surrounding it, and then that electricity generated by those thermocouples then powers the spacecraft. Yeah, it, it's a similar theory to that. Uh, I, don't, I don't think they're thermocouples, though. Um, the thermocouples, would, they would never generate enough. Um, and no, they, they don't. I mean, they, and they, the, and the they, ones I saw were, were about six foot, give or take tall. They were cylindrical operations. You would put multiples of these disks in there, and the, the inner walls were lined with these uh, thermogenerating things. Yeah. And they, the, the article I saw was thermocouples. Now, there was, a, it, there was one be. version that was an, let's see, S R uh, thermal thermal something generator, and I want to say ASRG, but the ASRG was a recent program that NASA just canceled. And I was curious if you had heard anything about any of these nuclear plants or nuclear power units being further developed, or if they're just using the old ones for future satellites. Well, they're. They're in, the pro- going sold. they're in the process of building. Um, the uh, Westinghouse has the AP1000. Um, GE's got a version, ABB. Um, they're supposed to be. Uh, they're calling them pass- passive series, where they um, the control rods in the event of a gross failure, the control rods would na- naturally, based on gravity, uh, you know, go down into the reactor and, and basically the thorium, neutralize it. The thorium salt reactors, right? Um, no, these are the regular. These these are the kind. Um, just like I said, just like what we have today, the pressure Heavy water? reactors. Um, no, um, or, no, no Canadian, Canadian uh, Canada, the one they use the heavy water units. Okay. Um, no, ours are just a. We use uranium two thirty eight in the fuel rods, and um, you know they use borated water. Um, yeah, so it's you know it's it's a simple process, but um, you know I'll, it would be well, the, 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 the same is, is the same principle. It's just the difference is, like I said, in the, what they're looking at is in the event of like a failure, like like what happened in Fukushima. I mean, these are big reactors. So yeah. These aren't things we can send uh, into space. No, no. But now, if you're going to talk about something that small, they I, be, I believe they're liquid sodium. They're small modules. Liquid thir- uh, liquid salt lifter. Liquid salt. And these were, I think, developed by by the Norwegians. Yeah. Um, where they, they I know Toshiba had one that they're trying to tout as a much smaller yeah. thing. They and they say it could power up a town. Um, yeah. I don't know uh, what the time frame is. I, I, I followed it a little bit, but I, I haven't really been able to get into a whole lot of yeah. detail on it. But uh, that seems like uh, that might be viable, except I don't know what happens. What's, how long does it last? What do you do when it's spent? Um, so I don't know enough about that to really say too much, but yeah. there's there's different things they're looking at. Um, I said as far as uh, I, I think fusion, uh, they just recently they released some news on fusion that they've they've gotten a little bit closer to. to you know, I heard on, that they'd actually had 
a reaction. A sustaining reaction. A sustaining reaction. Now, but what I didn't catch is did that sustaining reaction actually produce more energy than it took in? Do you remember? It was at least the same. Um, it was a small reaction, and they had to keep it small because if you, if obviously we don't have the capability of containing the kind of energy it could give off yet if, if, if we took it to <laughs> the next level. Um, and I, the way the article went, it was successful, so I believe it must have produced at least a little bit more than they put into it. Um, yeah, that's something I'd have to look back into. But yeah, all these things, there's a lot of advances going on out there. Um, that, like I said, right now we look at things and we say, well, you know, this wouldn't be viable. Um, a year from now, we might be looking back and saying, hey, you know what? Now we can do this. Uh-huh. So, you know, I find like, like popular science is a real good source for keeping up with these things. Um, Nuclear Journal. I and mean, there, there's, there's a whole lot of sources out there. I found some notes here. And when, when it comes to power generation, since you're in that industry, um, I, I found my notes to talk about the Toshiba uh, 4S was designed to generate 40 kilowatts. The SAFE 100 KW is designed to put off 100 kilowatts of energy, uses a uranium heat pipe. Does that make sense? You know what that means? I'm not sure what it is. I've heard of it. Um, I'm not sure how they're using it, though. Yeah. Um, then there's the, the ones I was thinking of were the RTGs, radio thermal, radio thermal, no, it's not radio. It's, uh, what is it? Um, Radioisotope thermal generator. That's what it was. And, of course, those have been used for 30, 40 plus years. And then the ASRG, or the Advanced Sterling Radioisotope Generator. Now, you mentioned that the, the thermocouples used in the SRGs, they just can't put out much. I mean, the maximum put out was a mere 292 continuous watts. Yeah, mostly thermocouples that you're measuring resistance off of them. So they right. really don't give you anything. Uh, the detectors we use for measuring the in-core, um, for measuring the channels, um, that was basically in, inside the detector. We had uh, uranium-238 and the neutrons would strike it, and that's what basically generated a, a current, but it was uh -huh. a small current. Yeah. So I don't know, like I said, it, it would be really in-depth to develop something that could generate a, enough current to, to be viable in that respect. So I'm not sure if they have something new that they're, they're mm -hmm. able to use for that. I want to share something with you. I did some research for the course of my uh, Space Settlement book, and one of the things that I, I drew from is that according to the U.S. Energy Information survey back in 2009, they did a survey of average households in the U.S. And during 2009, uh, the average was 908 kilowatts of electricity used in a month. When I read in further detail that that average household accounted for between two and three persons, and then they compared that to the fact that the ISS generates nearly 124 kilowatts hours of energy supporting six astronauts. Now, I was trying to come up with a comparison to, the, to this. An average household carries three people and uses 900 kilowatts, kilowatt hours, and the ISS in a month with six people uses 124 kilowatt hours. Now, okay, they probably don't have central heating and air on the ISS. They probably don't have the refrigerators, the washing machines, they the water heaters. They do have to reprocess heater. the air. They do have to reprocess so. the air, but I'll bet that's a 
that's that's going to be um, electronics based. You're still so which is still a low yeah. voltage. Yeah. And and low amperage actually, as I understand it, right? You're not really drawing a lot of power for that. Right. It's it's just yeah. a very slow, long, drawn out process. Um, and so I'm sitting here thinking, if if we're going to put our seven people on the moon, how much energy are they really going to need? If the ISS is getting away with 124 kilowatt hours, but they're running a boatload of experiments, mm -hmm. we're not necessarily running experiments, but we need to run lighting for our farm. Yeah. So we're probably in the, what, one to 300 kilowatt hours a month, you think? You probably do it on that. I mean, you look at like how, how some of our things have grown. You could do it with a black light. Yeah. I mean, that's the pot growers in Colorado. Right, there I you mean. go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> pot growers. And what, Colorado and even Arizona now? We've got mm -hmm. several states actually doing that. Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, but, you know, the biggest thing is, is I wonder how it would actually work. You know, we've talked about the issues with uh, dust. We've talked about radiation. We've talked about now power. We've talked about... Um, how do you repair the robots if you can use robots to do the work? And we we actually seem to agree that you've got to have boots on the ground. Yeah. There just is no yeah. way around it. Yeah. Now, here's a quick thought question for you. We talked about training for sending somebody into space. Mm -hmm. What about, as part of the training, they work under the sea first? There's a lot of similarities okay. there. Well, actually, yeah. In, in the research I did for the book, it's, it's one of the points I bring up is I say, you know, NASA spends a boatload of money getting our guys ready to go to space. Mm -hmm. Do they spend any time in a submarine? I don't think so. They spend a little bit of time in their spacesuit training in a pool, but mm -hmm. I don't think that's the same thing. No, they need to be spending that time being isolated to, as you point out, bring out or at least hopefully try to surface some of the underlying issues that may creep up yeah. in the isolated environment of the ISS. Yeah. If you set them up in an underwater laboratory, uh, pick a time, let's say... Well, could an isolated cave do the same thing? Possibly. I would think, though, being in an under underwater, like a, like a that bomb the ocean type laboratory, uh -huh. I mean, it doesn't have to be deep or anything. I'm thinking a sealed cave. They're inside only. Yeah. There's no going yeah. outside. You're still cramped. Yeah. Um, the Brilliant. reason I say a cave, primarily because you've got um, access, mm -hmm. you want to simulate as much of your habitat environment on the moon as possible. If you're surrounded by water, yeah, it's close, but the issues are different. Yeah. Your thought process but, is about all of this water above you and but, drowning as opposed to... But you think some of the things you're going to be able to uh, observe, like with whether it be through your instruments, through cameras, or what, the bottom of the sea, it will keep you... I guess the whole thing would be to see if you can keep your mind sharp mm -hmm. when you're isolated from, from mankind. Whatever. Um, in a cave... But that becomes problematic, whether it's a cave or whether it's under the ocean, if you're, if you're looking to survival skills, mm -hmm. which is being a farm, being, yeah. dealing with your food, dealing with your water, and these type of things. So a lot of issues. Uh, yeah. Thanks for your insights tonight. Yeah. Just a whole boatload yeah. of stuff. I'm going to turn the time back over to our engineer, Ms. Patty. Thank you, Pat. Time. Thank you. <laughs> it's a good conversation. Good conversation. And you know, uh, we're going to end it by talking, Mike, briefly here about what he's going to be. He's going to be at Leprechaun uh, at the end of this week. But before that, we also have a uh, blog show with the Blog Goddess on Tuesday night. 
and uh, 7 o'clock. And so, uh, again, want to get you guys into that. I also want to obviously mention, before we get off here, uh, this show has been sponsored by Imperialopolis Games. You know, those guys out there in Glendale, Thunderbird and 49th Avenue. Uh, just love those guys out there, and they've been our, our song supporters here at Y Media. And also Air, uh, VIP Airsoft in, Glendale, uh, in Gilbert, which is right off there on Baseline Road, uh, just on the other side of the border of Gilbert. So those guys are out there, too. A lot of fun out there. It's a really family-oriented shoot-em-up area. <laughs> so uh, tell us what you're going to be doing on uh, Wednesday. We're going to be actually talking about uh, we're be talking about screenplay writing. Yeah, that that should be pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I enjoy talking to people about that, um, especially people that, that are interested in uh, whether you, you've written books and you want to adapt them to screenplays, or whether you just want to get right into the uh, the screenplay business itself. Um, you know, I've had a lot of experience, you know, with this as far as like the process of you know, actually getting to a producer and sitting down and talking with them. Um, you know, I've been close in a lot of cases. I've written some small projects for for people. Um, there's so much, there's so much that goes into it, but you won't find a grassroots book out there that tells you how to start, yeah. things to consider before you get into it, and that's something I enjoy sharing with people because everything I learned. Yeah, you know, it's been basically to walk in the streets. You know, get out there, talk to people, and see what you can find out. That's definitely true. And uh, we'll also be talking uh, about the process of, of taking your book into actual format. So uh, you guys are going to be out there. It's going to be over on Wednesday at the Refuge Cafe on 7th Avenue in Camelback. Um, I do have a, a an area where you guys can sign up. Uh, you don't need to sign up, but it would be nice to know because the fact that we probably only fit about uh, 10 or 15 really comfortably in the back room without really starting to, the walls kind of coming in on us. Though uh, so it's definitely good to uh, for you guys to sign up. If you guys know my website, website and also know my Facebook page, you'll be able to get right to the Eventbrite information about that. Uh, and then, of course, we'll be at Leprechaun on Thursday night got a little stint with us at the uh, Hey Girls Americana show on Thursday night, which would be a lot of fun. And, of course, you'll be there all weekend. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to Leprechaun this year. Uh, we have some good panels going on. Uh, I'll be available. I'm promoting my new book, Princess Pain. Uh, anybody that wants to come talk to me, uh, yeah, I'm more than happy to share thoughts on, on writing, the writing industry itself, uh, things with the subsidiary rights, um, just pretty much anything in general. If you want to talk science, uh, Don will be over there with me. Come on by. We'll be glad to talk your ear off. And, you know, the nice thing about LoveCon, again, is an intimate con. So this is exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. You know, these kind of, you know, writers have been around for for a little while, in 2004. And uh, you guys have, you know, just being able to sit down and talk to these people. And if you give them a drink, they'll even talk to you longer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> meet them at the bar. Now, this is the most rewarding part of being a writer, when you actually get a chance to go out and meet fans. Uh, you know, whether they're fans of yours or just fans in general, uh, you know, it's this is kind of like your your vacation time. You get away from the computer and you just go out and have fun. That's definitely true, and uh, I, I'm really welcome the fact that getting away from the computer for a while that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, so this is Patty Holtzman, and this is uh, KWAD Radio, and we're signing out for the day. Uh, see you again on Tuesday when we talk to. Uh, I've got an interview. Obviously, we'll be interviewed uh, with uh, Tina at. Uh, 
at the blog goddess, and then I'll turn around after being interviewed by her uh, uh, as well. So it'd be an interesting night. I'll be interviewing an interviewer uh, on the same night. So that it's happened before. So uh, you know that's it's uh, a great in and out kind of thing. And, uh, and then, of course, we got Thursday night, which will be actually the, the Hate Girls Americana show. Uh, if anybody wants to help me to sponsor that, uh, we could definitely use your help to pay for the hotel fee for the uh, for the live feed for that particular show on Thursday. So they're telling me that I have one minute left. And with that, I'm going to say good night. You guys have a great weekend, rest of the weekend. And, you know, uh, just kick back for a little bit and enjoy the rest of the night. It's K-Wide Radio, Patty Holstrand, signing out.